0: Of a look on the ASA. Oh my gosh. They're all going against
1: the wind. It was basically a cube with inside of sphere, where the points of the cube uh, were touching outside of the sphere.
0: This isn't anything that just is limited to the United States. It's a worldwide phenomenon. Hi everyone, Andy here. This is a special announcement for folks who listen to the show via Spotify. You can now support the pod directly through Spotify for less than the price of a coffee each month, giving you ad-free content, no sponsorships, early access, and bonus shows as well. So many of you have chosen to support the show through Patreon and Apple Premium, and I appreciate this has been a long time coming for Spotify listeners. Just search That UFO Podcast Premium in Spotify, or click the link in this description for this announcement. Again, thank you to everyone who supports the podcast and just listens to the shows. Lots of great content to come. Hi everyone and welcome back to that UFO podcast. I'm delighted to say joining me on the podcast for another visit is head of the Galileo project Professor Avi Loeb. Well, Avi, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Uh, delighted. And listen, there's so much to talk about. Uh, we last spoke back in August 2021. At the time you had secured the funding for the Galileo project and we were discussing what those plans are going to be. So much has happened since then. Uh, I've recently just read your blog from March where you stated that the first telescope for the project would be built on the roof of the Harvard College Observatory. What's the planned timescale for this uh, and what can we expect from that telescope and piece of equipment once it's fully functional?
1: Well, we ordered the instruments and we are planning to start in the middle of May or so, once all all of them arrive, to start putting them together because... Uh, In difference from uh, past reports about the unidentified objects in the atmosphere, um, we want to be in full control over the instrumentation. So it will not be uh, a camera in a jittery cockpit of a fighter jet. And we we want to uh, use the best equipment possible in the market right now. Uh, And it's different from uh, military equipment, of course, because it, it doesn't need to Uh, survive in a battlefield, and it could be of much higher fidelity. Um, And uh, so we ordered the instrumentation. We want uh, to put it together within a month on the roof of the Harvard College Observatory, not because that site is particularly interesting. In fact, it's cloudy in Cambridge, Massachusetts often, but we just want to have it close to us so we can test uh, the system. And it will include um, an infrared detector that is made of um, eight uh, cameras covering the entire sky in the infrared uh, at all times so we are basically taking a video of the sky and the infrared offer- offers the uh, benefit that you can observe objects also at night even when the sun is out uh, you don't need something to shine on the object if it's warm you can see it in the infrared and uh, Uh, during the daytime of course you have the sun shining on objects and that makes it easier to detect so we have also a visible light uh, camera that has a fisheye lens that looks at the entire sky again Uh, and in addition to those two there will be uh, a radio uh, sensor that uh, looks for reflected radio waves Uh, there is uh, a transmission from radio stations everywhere and Uh, this is a passive system that looks for the reflection of radio waves from any object in the sky. And then, uh, in addition, there will be an audio system recording sound. Uh, So we will get the full movie of the sky, both the video and the audio, in different colors. Uh, And uh, uh, then there will be a computer system that analyzes the data and looks for objects of interest. And, of course, that's the heart of the the project in the sense of... um, uh, identifying the nature of the objects we see. And there are two categories that are not of great interest, but they will probably describe most of the objects we see. One of them is natural objects, like a bird, a lightning in the atmosphere, a meteor, you know, things that come naturally. Uh, and uh, the second category is um, objects made by humans, uh, a drone, an airplane, a satellite, And both of these categories are not of great interest to us. Of course, a drone manufactured by another country is of interest to the intelligence agencies, and uh, a bird is of interest to a zoologist. But we we don't really... I mean, we would like to recognize all of these, but what we want to see is whether there is anything else out there. And uh, if we don't find anything else, so be it. We cleared up the fog. You know, we identified whatever is out there, it's a fishing expedition. So we don't assume anything. We we approach it agnostically. And, you know, science is about reproducible results. So if there is anything in the sky that is unusual, we should be able to find it. We don't need to wait for the government to declassify data. That's the whole spirit. Once this system works, and we hope that it will work by the end of the summer, uh, then we will make copies of it and distribute them in different locations. And the number of copies depend on uh, how much funding we have. So currently we have $2 million. We could afford about 5 to 10 uh, copies. Uh, What we really need is hundreds of copies so that we get very good statistics of all the objects that might be out there based on the reports um, from the government. And... um, for that we need a funding level of a hundred million dollars uh, so my hope that is that once we demonstrate that we know what we are talking about we will get funding from uh, wealthy individuals that are inspired by the goal of the project so um, we should see i mean on friday for example i'm uh, participating in the concluding panel of uh, bitcoin 2022 uh, in miami florida and you know, there would be a 15,000 people in the audience, some of which uh, are very wealthy. And I hope they will be inspired.
0: Um, you never know. I've got my $10 of Bitcoin, so if that ever uh, increases exponentially, then maybe I'll get investing as well. (laughs) Listen, Avi, just as we've hit record, the US Space Command confirmed to the NASA directorship that an interstellar meteor discovered by a student of yours and yourself, Amir Siraj, I think I'm saying the name correctly, uh, in 2019 is indeed of interstellar origin. Uh, The detection, I believe, happened in 2014, which predates Oumuamua, by more than three years. So this object, this meteor, will now be recognized as the first interstellar object ever discovered. Can you tell us just a little bit about that? And then I do have a question on the back of that as well as pertains to the equipment.
1: Yeah, so this uh, discovery is very exciting for a number of reasons. First of all, um, I was uh, invited to an interview in uh, March 2019 uh, about a meteor that... um, Uh, was uh, recognized um, around that uh, time a few months earlier that was quite powerful. And uh, I read a a little about it uh, before the interview so that I'll be knowledgeable. And then uh, uh, while reading background on meteors, I realized, well, there is actually a catalog of meteors uh, uh, that the U.S. government has data on. And uh, so then I approached my student and I said, look, why don't you check this catalog and see if any of the... Uh, velocities reporter, reported for these meteors measured by the U.S. government uh, indicate that any of these objects came from outside the solar system, because if they move very fast relative to Earth, you know, they might have originated from far away. And so uh, um, he uh, his name is Amir Siraj. He's an undergraduate at Harvard College. And so he went to the catalog and looked at the fastest object reported relative to Earth. And turned out that this object was on a head-on collision. The Earth moves in some direction, and this object came exactly from the opposite direction. So it's not not necessarily unbound to the Sun. It's probably bound to the Sun. It didn't come from outside the solar system. So then he went to the second object in the list, and he found that this object actually uh, had a a speed of uh, 40 kilometers per second outside the solar system. If you uh, subtract off the the motion of the earth and then uh calculate its own motion uh, relative to the sun and 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 go back in time you you realize that he actually was very fast even outside the solar system so that was very exciting uh, because it indicated that this object is interstellar so we wrote the uh, uh, scientific paper about it saying, well, this object was discovered uh, on uh, January 8th, 2014 at uh, five in the afternoon, Um, and it's uh, 3.75 years before Oumuamua, uh, and uh, it was found uh, north of uh, Manus Island, uh, off the coast of Papua New Guinea, Uh, and uh, we... You know describe the calculation and argue that it's the first interstellar object that uh, was detected on earth and it was just missed even though if it, it was in this catalog nobody actually uh, wrote a paper saying this is an interest of interstellar origin so we submitted the paper in 2019 uh, march 2018 after my interview and uh within a few days from that and uh, submitted it to the Astrophysical Journal, and then we got a referee report back saying, you know, in that catalog of the government, there are no error bars. Uh, we don't trust the government. It's most likely this object has large uncertainties in the measurement. And I thought to myself, that makes no sense because the US government is after ballistic missiles, right? And they need to know whether they land on Boston or New York. They need very high precision. So if you're telling me that the aero budget should be huge uh, at a level that would make this object bound to the sun, that means the government doesn't know what they're doing. They can't really predict what ballistic missiles uh, are, you know, which target they're moving towards. And I, I cannot believe that, you know, that doesn't make sense. So. So we actually, at the time I was chairing the board on physics and astronomy of the National Academies and one of the members there was from Los Alamos, so uh, behind the fence of national security. So I approached him and said, could you please give us assurance that the aero budget is indeed small so that this object is definitely of interstellar origin? And he went back and discussed it. uh, And then we got an email saying, yes, We can assure you that it's in the cell. So then we went back to the referee of the Astrophysical Journal and said, look, we got this assurance. Uh, You should accept the paper for publication. And the referee said, no, I don't believe the US government. This is not a public announcement. The paper is rejected. And you can ask yourself, why was this referee or referees, there were several of them, so hostile? My answer is, because they're quote-unquote experts. They worked in this field for decades. They do not like the idea that someone else that is new to their field makes a discovery. So they would try to find any reason to dispute that discovery, even if it says the U.S. government doesn't know what they're doing. So the paper was rejected and you know, just uh, sat on, on, on our desk for three years now. So in the meantime... Uh, We, of of course, informed uh, people uh, that assured us that this is interstellar and said, look, we need a more uh, official announcement. And gladly, after three years, you can see how long it takes to declassify aerobars. They didn't actually declassify the aerobar. They just made a public announcement from the Department of Defense, the United States uh, Space Command, and the, the letter is available for anyone to see, It was sent to the directorate of of NASA under the leadership of Thomas uh, Zurbuchen, who is responsible for all the science done at NASA. And in that uh, letter, they explicitly say that uh, the uh, discovery of the meteor by my student Amir Siraj and myself uh, is indeed a discovery of an object from an interstellar origin. And uh, they say that at the 99.999% confidence. 99.999%. So I ask you, why would their free disbelieve <laughs> the original report and the original email we had when the government is at the 99.999% confident, And obviously they would be because they have to know what they're doing in terms of monitoring the motion of objects you know, in the sky, right? So anyway, this is the bottom line. As of today, this letter was released, and now we know there was an interstellar uh, object discovered before Oumuamua. Okay, that's point number one. The second point uh, that it is significant is because this is a meteor. What that means is it came, it collided with the Earth, okay? So... um, of course, it burned in in the atmosphere and there was a fireball and that's how it was detected from the fireball, from the heat uh, as a result of it rubbing against the air. But something, you know, some relic of it may have landed in the ocean. So we can put our hands on it. So there are two possibilities. Either this interstellar object is natural You know, like people suggested about Oumuamua, maybe it's a nitrogen iceberg, maybe it's a hydrogen iceberg, you know, maybe it's a dust bunny. Well, clearly this one is not a dust bunny, because a dust bunny would not burn up like a meteor, okay? So here is an interstellar object that is not a dust bunny, and, you know, if any piece of it landed in the ocean, we can put our hands on it, which we cannot do with respect to Oumuamua. So that's the second reason why it's interesting. And I suggest, you know, let's go and search for it.
0: It's very exciting. And it got me thinking, Avi, that with the equipment that you're trying to get, let's talk about that first telescope that's going to be on the roof of the Harvard College Observatory. What sort of timescales will it take from the telescope picking up an object of interest like, like that meteor? at being tracked and observed by your team to your team having sufficient data to decide on a course of action? Are we talking minutes, hours, days, or, or potentially longer?
1: Oh, if we do detect a meteor, then we immediately know that, right? And and then uh, meteors are, are reported as, as soon as they're discovered, but you need to cover a, a, a significant chunk of the sky to see one of them because they're rare
0: and um, let's let's say not a meteor that's something more anomalous that you're you're picking and detecting Yeah. so so the only i mean we will know immediately if there is something
1: unusual Um, the question is how quickly will we release the data we need to go through a procedure where we check that you know it's not um, a fake object it's not an optical illusion of the instruments that we trust the data and that it's not something natural you know like something that is not of great interest and it's not a, a drone not the human made uh that may take uh, some weeks or or at most a few months you know and uh but eventually we'll release the data so the only issue is really for us to be sure not to cry wolf uh, you know unjustifiably because then we lose credibility if we off, if we keep announcing things that are not real then you know people will not believe us anymore so we just need to be careful that what we are seeing is a real object, that uh, it behaves in ways that cannot be described as natural objects or human-made objects. And, of course, once we verify that, we'll be delighted to share it to share the data with everyone. Uh,
0: what steps have you put in place to future-proof the technology that, obviously, we're, you're still to build your first telescope, but as our own technology advances... I presume there's going to be scope for you to upgrade equipment down the line. Do you have a succession plan of what you would look to upgrade first?
1: Yeah, we have uh, multiple phases that we are thinking about. And, of course, funding is really important because if we do get funded at least 10 times more than we have right now, then instead of using a 10-centimeter aperture for the telescope that barely resolves um, you know, features uh, of about half a meter on um, an object at a distance of 10 kilometers, you know, we might be able to do much better with a half a meter telescope or a meter size telescope. Um, And, but that costs uh, much more money, like a meter size telescope costs half a million dollars. So right now we focus on, on telescopes that are of the order of um, the size of the palm of your hand, you know, like of all the 10 centimeters. Uh, But, If we had more funding, we would go for bigger ones and bigger apertures, and that would allow us to have better resolution, crispier images. Um, And also, um, we could afford many more uh, eyes looking at the sky, many more telescopes looking at the sky. So it's all a question of funding. Uh, Our estimate is that with $100 million, we should be able to do the job very well. And that's really my goal, to uh, inspire people that can afford uh, funding the project, and you know, it's not a lot of money when you consider scientific projects. This is sort of mid-size uh, or even small project uh, relative to the big ones. The big, the biggest projects like the James Webb Space Telescope or the Large Hadron Collider—they are a hundred times more expensive. They are ten billion dollars. Here we are talking about one percent of that budget to accomplish everything we want.
0: So it's it's really not a lot. Did you know that podcast advertising is way more effective than display advertising? With 67% of listeners remembering brands and 63% making a purchase after hearing them. Whether you want to diversify your ad spend, add a new marketing stream, or test out podcast ads, Zencaster's Creator Network makes it easy for brands to connect with podcasters. Zencaster's mission is to make podcast advertisements as easy and accessible to business owners as Google or Facebook host red ads like this are the most effective form of podcast advertising Zencaster works with podcasters to help create unique to them ad spots that create brand awareness and conversion Zencaster's creator network is the perfect place for you to get into podcast ads and sponsor your favorite creators like me That's the number one. Or click the link in the description and fill out the contact information so Zencaster can help you bring your business story to life. The field of ufology, UFOs, is very much still in its infancy and changing all the time. It it can be hard to speak to people who are are so science and data-driven because it's difficult to not go into the speculative side of the subject. However, if if you'll allow me for one moment many people would claim that the craft or UAPs are potentially using anti-gravity technology. That's something that's quite common. Would it be pertinent for people like yourself in the Galileo project to look for signatures like gravitational waves? And could you potentially track these using LIGO or other laser interferometers?
1: Okay, so let me first say what is known uh, in terms of the current science that we know about. Uh, first of all, uh, according to Einstein's theory of gravity, you can get uh, uh, repulsive gravity. And uh, in fact, you get it when the vacuum, you know, the vacuum is what, what you have when you remove all the matter. So when the vacuum itself has some mass density, mass per unit volume or energy per unit volume, it you can show that that, in, in, in the context of Einstein's theory of gravity, that gives you a repulsive force and actually we observe it <laughs> so einstein thought well it's a mistake of my theory that uh, you know it gives this uh, so called cosmological constant you know that has to do with the energy of the vacuum uh, he thought oh i should get rid of it because otherwise you know you know he was thinking about it just to balance the expansion of the universe at the time he thought the universe doesn't expand so he thought having a repulsive force of gravity balancing the attractive force of matter would make the universe static, uh, not expanding if you have an, a perfect balance between the two forces. But then he realized he was wrong because Edwin Hubble um, argued the universe is expanding and, and uh, Einstein said, oh, that was a mistake. I, I shouldn't have thought about this repulsive gravity, but it turns out that it exists. And in fact, even though the universe is expanding, Uh, Its expansion is accelerating um, recently. And uh, that means that there is something pushing galaxies apart, uh, a repulsive gravitational force, which is believed to be a result of this cosmological constant, the the vacuum energy density. And so it exists. We know of that. Uh, What is the nature of the vacuum energy that is causing this expansion? You know, where does it come from? From a fundamental physics point of view, we don't really understand that. Okay. But the existence of a repulsive gravity, anti gravity, is known to, to be real because that, the Nobel Prize was awarded for that and for, for the discovery of the accelerated expansion of the universe. Uh, so the universe is not only expanding, it's expanding with a speed that is increasing over time, as if something is pushing everything apart. And that happens uh, only in recent. Uh, history: uh, If you go back in time, at early on, the density of matter was so large, much larger than the density of the vacuum. The matter, the matter density dominated. The, the radiation density dominated, and at that point, gravity was attractive. So it's only a recent phenomenon over the past uh, half of the age of the universe that matter and radiation were diluted enough for the vacuum to take over and dominate and, and, and show this accelerated expansion. Before that, it wasn't really important, uh, except maybe very early on in the universe. Okay, so that's what we know. Now, uh, that doesn't mean that we can manipulate the vacuum and, and sort of uh, engineer it to propel things uh, based on what we know. We don't know how to do that. Let's put it that way. We don't know how to sort of excavate the vacuum and and and. and you know, use it for propulsion. Uh, But that doesn't mean that it cannot be done. I mean, perhaps um, a more advanced scientific civilization would be able to do that. So I wouldn't rule it out. It's just that we don't have any idea of how to do that, how to, you know, propel something using the vacuum. We don't know how to do that. Um, And then the other thing I would say is gravitational waves are really difficult to excite um but even if you excite them uh, it's you know in order to produce a, a meaningful level of a gravitational wave so that we can detect it with a, a an observatory like LIGO or or the future observatories that we will build um what you read is what you need is a a very high concentration of of mass like you get uh in a black hole um but The point is, if you have that concentration of mass, just the Newtonian effect, forget about gravity, gravitational waves, just the fact that you have this mass that is, you know, a very large mass in order to generate strong waves, that mass by itself acts on anything on Earth using, you know, based on Newton's law of gravity, okay? So, just like the Sun acts on us or Jupiter acts on us, so before you even worry about gravitational waves, there would be this Newtonian effect that would move things around. And we would notice it because the oceans would show a tide. And so don't think about gravitational waves as if that would be the only way we would learn about a massive compact object that, you know, because long before that, uh, there would be effects like on the oceans, a tidal effect due to the Newtonian gravity that would move the oceans around in a way that is noticeable. So... So I would suggest not to think about gravitation waves as a good uh, way of detecting um, objects because there are much bigger effects that come into play before gravitational waves uh, affect us or are measurable, just based on gravity. I'm I'm saying uh, there are are other effects based on gravity that are much stronger, like the Newtonian force uh, of a passing object. So... um, it's very difficult to generate detectable gravitational waves without producing a strong Newtonian force. That's my point. So I would argue, let's not think about gravitation waves as a good way to detect things. We can use Newtonian uh, gravity uh, to detect them much more easily. And on top of that, there are other things that we can observe, of course, using um, light, you know, radiation, either reflected off the object or emitted by the object, much easier to detect, much, much easier.
0: Thanks for the explanation. And some of the more scientific-minded people, I'm sure, would have appreciated the detail you've gone into as well. Uh, Something you've talked about in the past, Avi, is uh, looking for strange fish and the idea that hopefully we could capture that amazing picture, that, that photograph, that data of something truly anomalous. If you did, as part of the Galileo Project, capture this strange fish, um, how do you go about releasing that to the public? You, you mentioned, obviously, you would you would release that to the public. Would there be some sort of press release or an event? What, what would that look like?
1: Well, it, first of all, we would, as I said, uh, make sure that uh, we understand how the data was collected and that what we are dealing with is real. And it's not easily explainable as a natural phenomena or human-made object. And then, uh, of course, we will write a scientific paper about it. Uh, to be submitted to a scientific journal, peer-reviewed journal, and have a press release about it. And the data, I should say, at the end of all of this, the data will be made available to anyone. Uh, we will never hold the data to ourselves because you know, the, uh, it's really trying to figure out what is going on in the vicinity of Earth, trying to figure out that knowledge which should be shared Uh, with all humans, you know, it doesn't adhere to national borders, doesn't, it's not a question of us, you know, knowing something that nobody else knows. Um, That's not really the issue. And the other thing I should say is, you know, once we release the data, and people can look at it, I don't feel uh, you know, the need to convince people, uh, if the data is clear, you know, if, if there is a high resolution image of an object that looks artificial, and yet it moves in ways that Our technologies cannot reproduce or we cannot imagine a natural way of making such an object. You know, like, for example, if it moves at a fraction of the speed of light or accelerates in in very strange ways, you know, um, if people want to argue with that, so let them argue with that. You know, it's not a matter of a popularity contest on Twitter, um, just for the same reason that... It was not necessary for Galileo uh, four centuries ago to convince the philosophers. They didn't believe him. They put him in house arrest. Today, they would have canceled him on social media. That was not really the issue. The issue is not whether they agree with him. The issue is whether he's right. And uh, the evidence is the best way to demonstrate that you're right. It's not uh, how many people agree with... It's not politics, you see. And uh, if you were to ask those philosophers to design a space mission to Mars, they would never get to their destination because they thought that Mars moves around the Earth. So they had the wrong idea. And reality is whatever it is. You know, the Earth continued to move around the Sun, even though these philosophers disagreed with that. And the Galileo Project is called after Galileo for that reason, that we will base our statements on the evidence... And frankly,
0: it's not a a popularity contest. You mentioned Galileo and the house arrest and philosophers, you know, thought he was wrong about his observations. Do you think it's equally as important to be able to accept being wrong in this field? Because you mentioned Einstein himself, who once thought that the universe was static and wasn't expanding. But when he finds out actually it is, he can admit, do you know what? I never thought of this or whatever that was and he can move on and help in the f- study, it still seems that so many mainstream physicists, scientists, um, astrologists, astronomers, sorry, and others don't want to get involved in the conversation. I know in the UK we have Professor Brian Cox, who is somewhat of a celebrity, but is still quite outspoken on the subject and doesn't like entertaining the notion of, of aliens or extraterrestrials. Um, uh, certain, certain astronauts recently have also came out again, I think it was Chris Hadfield, today was quoted again as saying, you know, if you think there's aliens out there, you're a bit stupid, basically, which is a strange statement to make. So do you think it's important that people can accept that there could be something else out there and help move that conversation forward? Yeah. So I do think many of these statements
1: are made because the people who make them think that they are popular and they want to be liked on Twitter and social media. Okay. So what that reflects is sort of the the current uh, trends in society, you know, like it's completely legitimate and and, uh, acceptable to dismiss and ridicule this subject and to say extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence, which uh, is a quote from Carl Sagan. But I disagree with that because I think that extraordinary evidence requires extraordinary funding. So, you know, I call it the ostrich factor. If you decide not to search, if you decide not to look, you will not find anything, right? You will say, I don't have extraordinary evidence. At the same time, you will not look for that. And uh, if you look, for example, at the search for dark matter, there were billions of dollars invested in that, and we haven't found it. So if we search for technological equipment for 40 years and invest billions of dollars and not find anything, we would be just at the same point as dark matter searches are today. So my point is, those people that ridicule the subject, why don't they ridicule the possibility that dark matter is made of um, the lightest supersymmetric particle? After all, you know, not only that is a possibility that was not verified by experiment, so you can call it a speculation, but also we invested billions of dollars searching for that and didn't find it. So you should ridicule it twice. After investing the billions of dollars, we didn't find it. It's not just that it was a speculation to start with. And yet, that is part of the mainstream. And you wouldn't hear these people saying anything bad about the speculation that the dark matter is uh, the lightest supersymmetric particle. Even though we invested the money, we didn't find it. Okay? You wouldn't hear them criticize it. And yet, in, the, in terms of searching for something like us that sent equipment to, to space, searching for those relics, which is not as speculative. And would have huge impact on society if we find it. There is this ridicule, and the way I see it is just, uh, be, uh, you know, as a result of uh, social norms at this time. It has nothing to do with the evidence, because as I said, on the nature of dark matter, we actually searched and didn't find. So that's even a worse point to be in. Here we didn't even search. So how can that be? How can it be that people have resistance to the actual search and? The point is, if if you don't fund the search, you would never find anything. And the Galileo Project tries to break that mold. And my hope is to bring this subject to the mainstream of physics, where it belongs, because the public cares about it. The public finds uh, science. And we should just search. Now, if we don't find anything, so be it. You know, we, we will report whatever we see and we will use the scientific method. And, uh, you know, that's the way science works. I just cannot understand why people would ridicule the possibility that something like us existed a billion years ago on another planet that sent probes you know that i don't think albert einstein was the smartest scientist that ever lived since the big bang
0: now i'm hoping when you go to this bitcoin event that some of those investors with with big pockets and deep pockets give you some of the money you're hoping for if not all of it We keep hearing that there are connections potentially between anomalous objects, UAP, and the the water. um, And we hear about also nuclear facilities, nuclear technology. Does any of that come into your thinking with, if you get the opportunity to put multiple telescopes and sensor systems up, that you would hope to set something up close to nuclear facilities or near bodies of water that may be of interest?
1: Yeah, so the one thing you find if you look at all the reports on uh, UFOs or UAP is that uh, the number of reports is highly correlated with the population density. And that's simply because there are more eyes at the sky in places where humans are. And um, moreover, uh, military facilities, nuclear facilities are being monitored all the time. So um, the fact that there there are lots of reports coming from those facilities it doesn't mean that there is more activity there it just means that these regions are more uh, are monitored more often at least to to zero order. that's that's what you conclude when you look at that and um, in my mind it's it's quite possible that these things happen everywhere that uh, um, we should just um, go to go to places uh, you know, everywhere on Earth, and see if we we can uh, uh, find evidence for that. And, but of course, when we choose the locations, the sites where we want to put our telescope systems, we will take that into consideration. But uh, we will make sure that we don't violate the law. You know, we can't uh, uh, go into areas that are classified. We will try to to look at the sky from vantage points where there is no conflict with national interests
0: national security interest of course and i wonder avi you talk about reproducible results is really important within science it's it's the be all and end all in terms of you know being able to reproduce that data if you find one of these telescopes particularly is picking up objects over a period of time are there plans to potentially i'll I'll use the phrase bait or try and try and get one of these things to come out via any methods or is it purely observational
1: yeah, first, um, my philosophy is getting passive uh, data, basically observing it from a distance, just like you go to the zoo and you look at the giraffes and the elephants and you try to see what they are doing and, and learn about their nature. Okay, um, But if you do find something unusual that they came from outside of this earth, the question is what to do. And, you know, uh, that is a serious issue because... In the past most discussions were about a radio signal that comes from a star tens of thousands of light years away so you have plenty of time to decide what to do about that information but if you have a visitor in your backyard you have to respond immediately and currently we don't have a protocol that we, you know there there needs to be an organization that will represent humanity the question is who represents humanity and uh, that organization will need to decide how to engage with this object once we know what it does. So, my, But my recommendation is the first step is just monitor the object, see what kind of information it's seeking, assuming the object is active. You know, there could be interstellar artifacts or interstellar relics uh, that are, originate from technological civilizations that are just space trash. You know, they, they just like Voyager in a billion years from now would not be functional. And the, uh, there may be a lot of trash out there. You know, if we see a meteor that happens to be technological debris, some, some uh, technological relic, uh, it might be just trash. It, it will not try to seek any information. It just burn, partly burn in the atmosphere, then land, and we could see that it's technological. Um, and the question is, which fraction of the things we see are space trash, you know, that just happened to pass by, uh, versus, um, you know, equipment that has a, a purpose that perhaps is uh, rep- represents artificial intelligence that, that is trying to learn something about Earth, you know. And um, I think that's the first thing for us to figure out. And, and then if it does look for some information, we need to, to know what kind of information is it seeking. And only then we can start thinking about how to respond to it, you know. And we... We should all remember the story uh, from uh, Greek mythology about the Trojan horse that was mischaracterized by uh, the
0: citizens of Troy. I want to ask you, Avi, um, you wrote an article back in March and you spent time with journalist Leslie Kane. She mentioned during the article that she loved the sound of rain, to which you replied, it's even better when it snows, there is soft silence, and then you open the door to a completely new reality. I would like to ask you, is it snowing yet, or are we starting to open that door to that new reality? It's quite
1: possible that it's snowing and we just didn't open the door yet. And what the Galileo Project is trying to do is... Look through the open door and see what what is out there. And you know, th- my point is, you know, the, the 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 signs of something else may be silent, may be very, uh, th- they may not be obvious to us. And that's why, you know, if they were obvious, then we would know about it a long time ago. Just like we know about birds, you know, we've we've been seeing birds and we know about them. They are part of our life. Trees, we know about them. Uh, but obviously, you know, if we don't put any effort, we will not find those things that are a little more subtle, you know, that are not easy to detect. And when Enrico Fermi asked, where is everybody? You know, the point is, if it was obvious, he wouldn't need to ask it, but then, you know, it would have been part of our culture to to say, oh, the, the, there are all these visitors coming to us all the time. You know, the fact that we don't have it in our our culture means that it's not something that, comes to us without a, an effort on our behalf, just like learning about the universe. We need to use telescopes and that costs money, that, you know, you need to put an effort. And it it sort of makes sense because space is huge. You know, the, the size of the universe is 10 to the power 19, bigger than the size of the earth, okay? So we are sitting here on earth and asking, you know, where is everybody? That's a tiny bit of the space out there. And, you know, why, why would we be so important that, it will be obvious to us that there is something going on. And then the other thing is the time axis. You know, the the universe existed for 13.8 billion years. You know, I'm talking billions of years. And uh, recorded human history is only 10,000 years old. So that's a millionth of of the age of the universe. And we don't know what happened before. We we just have such a short glimpse of what we know about that um, I would argue, let's be modest. And let's really look around before we make any statements, you know.
0: Avi, I got sent a lot of listener questions, which we won't have time for today, but I'd love to get you back on soon. I'd like to finish with this one, though, from Bartholomew. Based on the collective experience of you, Avi, and the advisory board for the Galileo Project, what is your current level of confidence that a truly scientifically anomalous object will be identified and documented inside the Earth's atmosphere or in the near-Earth region?
1: Well um I um I was particularly moved by um the the poem uh, by Frost uh, Robert Frost uh, that talked about uh, taking the road not taken uh when two paths diverged in the woods and uh, according to him uh taking the road not taken uh made all the difference for him uh for me it offers the scientific advantage that you might find low-hanging fruit, because nobody took that path. So I'm actually optimistic that we will learn something new uh, in the coming years, as long as we dare to look through our telescopes. You see, as long as we don't uh, get uh, pushed away by those the naysayers that say, we know the answer in advance, we don't need to look through telescopes, which is pretty much the approach taken by philosophers during the days of Galileo. So my point is, if we go out and and search, I'm uh, I, I would be optimistic that we will maybe find something uh, new. Just because nobody tried that before, you see. I mean, there are anecdotal reports from the government, which is the most conservative organization, and from uh, the first interstellar object Oumuamua, that you know there is something strange going on. That and that's intriguing for me. It's not conclusive, but it's intriguing because it already says you know, there are some anomalies out there. So to figure out what they mean, we just need to get better data, not listen to those people on Twitter that dismiss the subject.
0: Avi, we'll have to get you back on as soon as possible to get through some of those listener questions, but I appreciate how busy you are. And again, thank you very much for your time. Thanks for having me. Of course, on Twitter, it's at UFO, UAP, A, M. And again, folks, as always, keep looking up. You never know what you might see.
1: It wasn't tic-tac and not quite a saucer, more like a hubcap designed by Chaucer, a little baroque and quite steampunk, like Alice was playing bass for the Parliament of The little fucker hovered right outside of my
0: window, and when I shut out the screen, he made it an issue. I don't think he expected me to see his ass, but I'd had some champagne and smoked a little
1: Game of full on Madness can't imagine how it could have been any better. I got to the top of the stairs and there he was. Mike, you awake? I was about to abduct you, cuz. I nearly kissed myself,
0: and I climbed out the window after the elf. And I woke up in my bed, and there was something on my head, and everything was weird, and everything was red. I called up my boys, they thought this was noise, they thought it was a dream, they thought it was my toys, they thought it was my problems, and I think i just a therapy, and I don't know what it, is, because it doesn't really scare me. Remain being serious, open your mind, consider your heart,
1: consider time, consider your space, consider your lies, consider your life. Consider-